I was probably just like a lot of the people that will be listening to this just happily carrying on with my life just going to work coming back looking after my kids I'd come back from uh, Afghanistan I'd been a soldier I'd been a medic with the army I was interested in the news you know kind of watching it from afar and bothered about things but kind of not bothered enough to really do much and then um, it was in April 2015 I read about a um, a boat that had capsized in in a Mediterranean Sea and knew that 800 people had drowned and I was appalled and started looking a little bit into getting involved but quickly like a lot of things I suppose you know you, you see something on the news you want to get involved and help and you know nothing materialises I couldn't find any organisations that were helping in the sea it went to the back of my mind a little, a little for a little while I turned my Facebook on one day to actually to delete it because I was you know sick of looking at other people what, what my friends had eaten for dinner and I thought oh what's the point in that you know I'll go on and delete it and then a friend of mine shared this story and it was written by you Jazz and I thought, oh, that looks interesting. I'll have a little look. This young lady that had been to Calais, where there'd been this jungle where all these people had been demonised and I'd heard, read in the news about all these people. And we were told that we were to be scared of them, that they were almost like they were savages every day in the news. And then I saw this girl that had been over and spent some time with them and she told a story about this human nature of these people that she'd met and said how beautiful they were and... And I, I thought, wow, she can do it, I can do it. Maybe I can take some sleeping bags and a blanket and and then, you know, I'll have done my bit, same way that she did her, her bit. And, you know, when I'm 80, I can look back and think, yeah, well, I did something. And then it kind of snowballed from there. This week, my guest is Brendan Woodhouse. You just heard him talking about how we first met and what prompted him to start volunteering with refugees. Brendan is a firefighter and father of two from Nottingham. After seeing a Facebook post that I wrote about the Calais Jungle refugee camp back in 2015, he started collecting donations and driving over to Calais himself. Before long, Brendan headed out to the Greek island of Lesvos following news reports of thousands of people arriving to its shores, seeking asylum. There he began working in search and rescue, saving lives by bringing boats full of people safely to land. The last four years have taken Brendan on a life-changing journey a journey which he is about to share with you today. You know, I remember the first refugee I met, a guy called Ami, I'm still friends with him now. He's got refugee status, a guy from Sudan, he's beautiful. He's got the, ni- the nicest kind of smile you could imagine. I remember coming off and I'd been told about how dangerous these people were, like everybody else had. And I drove my van in and I was telling everybody that was in, in my little group, what we're going to do is we're going to drive to the end of the road, we're going to turn around so I've got an exit strategy. And everyone was like, oh, why are you being so cautious? Of course... I was being cautious because of all the media I'd read. Mm-hmm. And I got the van all parked up and I got out and this guy says, oh, thank you so much for coming. And put his arms around me and he says, come and, come and sit down, come and sit down. You, you're in my home, come and sit down. And I sat around this fire and he welcomed me like a brother. He says, oh, do you want some food? I'm like, oh, we've, brought, we've come to bring you food. He says, no, no, I'll cook for you. <laughs> and they sat and cooked in front of me and just felt so welcomed. I just remember looking at him thinking... You're amazing and it just changed me forever. I had the same experience on those first trips to Calais. I was so overwhelmed by the hospitality of the people, despite the fact that they were literally living in tents in the mud. They would still go out of their way to make you a cup of tea, to make you some food, to share everything that they did have. We worry that they're going to change our culture. Well, I want them to change our culture to be more like theirs because it's a hospitality 
as you say, like I've never, ever known or experienced. We're talking about fam- family values. I've seen guys carrying their mother-in-law across, you know, a disabled mother-in-law on boats, on rubber boats across from Lesbos, all the way from, all the way from Afghanistan. And they'll carry their family on their backs and they'll have kids in tow. And you think, they, they, they're there for each other. They're really, the, the bond is incredible. And that culture is beautiful. And if we've got a culture that, that is, um, going to reject people on the basis of, of religion or, or, or a color of skin, I think it's a culture that we can lose. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast, stories from the refugee crisis. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. I got back after my first little visit and I wanted to kind of do more. You know, what I'd done wasn't enough. I was going backwards and forwards, you know, taking clothes, sleeping bags, blankets, shoes, the odd toy. And I started doing that for probably the next couple of months. But then I always, I was, I, I was getting more and more interested in what was happening in Lesvos and then Alan Curdy happened, Alan Curdy, when he drowned on the, on the beach in, in Bodrum. And, but I knew at the time that there were two children drowning in the Aegean Sea every single day, on average. On average, there were two Alan Curdys every single day. And we had this one picture that kind of seemed to change the perspective for a lot of people. But then I was starting to look at the, the boat landings in Lesbos and Samos and Kios and, I knew that as a, I mean, as a firefighter, as somebody that's been in the army and had a bit of experience, and that's probably the best place for me to to head to. So you started going to Calais, bringing things like tents and sleeping bags and physical stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then you started to hear more about what was happening in the Mediterranean. So how did you first get involved in search and rescue? How did that happen? How did that unfold? Well, uh, um, I first got involved in search and rescue in 2002 when I joined the fire service, I suppose. So I've got a background in it. Um, and I knew that, you know, um, I'd have some kind of skills to offer. Mm-hmm. When I was in Afghanistan, I, uh, one of my roles was to deal with um, mass casualty situations. So I was trained to kind of process and sort the the wounded from the really wounded um, and knowing how to, to, to do, how to set a system in place that that worked. So I just looked at my annual leave, found a slot in December, and then by the December, I was um, I was in Lesvos. And 
I remember the first time I arrived, I, I'd been told by one lady, you know, I've, I've spoken to uh, Proactiva Open Arms, these the Spanish volunteer group. You're gonna, uh, you're gonna arrive and you're gonna be a medic for them because you used to be a medic in Afghanistan. It'll be, it'll work really well. So I arrived in Lesvos thinking that's where I was gonna go on. So I arrived probably six o'clock in the morning. I got picked up from the airport, taken straight to them. I was like, yeah, this is really well organized. I got there and they're like, okay. <laughs> Who are you? Who are what you? are you doing like, here? Oh, my name's Brendan. I've come to be a, a medic with you. And they're like, no, you haven't. No, no, no. I've traveled all the way from England. Yeah. Like, well, you're going to have to travel all the way back. And I'm like, oh, crap. This is, you know. So, so what had happened? Was there just a breakdown in communication? Yeah, she, she kind of just imagined that I'd be able to go in there and told me that I could come and work. And she hadn't communicated with them at all. They only took Spanish volunteers, Spanish speakers. And they, they, they said, oh, we, we, our team all speak Spanish. We can't have somebody one that doesn't, Brit. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't have one Brit break the mold. And it was quite harsh in a way. It felt really like, and I walked away and I was sent to the rest of the group that I was with. Like, wow, what am I going to do now? I'm like, well, don't worry, there's lots of groups. Maybe you could go to this little lighthouse called Caracas. So I, um, I went to this little outpost called Caracas. Um, Caracas is um, the most dangerous landing spot in Lesbos. It's, it's, it's about as dangerous as it gets. A lighthouse is there to warn people of the rocks, but they saw it as a home and beacon. And our job was to see the boats come in, then communicate with the boat rescue teams to get a boat to go and get them to not come to our rocks. That's our first job. You can't always get to everybody in time, and you can't always communicate it very well. So then it is to, to land people safely, as, as safely as you can, to direct them to the areas that are least dangerous. So on that first night, we had a... A group of guys had arrived. It was all all lads, about twenty years old, got off the uh, all from Syria, and they got off. And that was my first experience of dealing with the boat landing. And it went really smoothly. Got them all off. And each boat that you dealt with was, seemed to be a little bit different. So these guys, I remember them. They got off, and they were all they all started dancing around the boat and singing Syrian songs, and um, all crouched down and then jumping up and kicking and clapping in the air. And they were all so jubilant to be there. We had a, we had a rock and roll party all the way back to the town. You know, D- different boats would come. Sometimes with families. Sometimes would be in a storm. Sometimes would be really calm weather. I remember one night, waves were absolutely smashing into the rocks. We, we were like, we ain't getting anybody tonight. Two o'clock in the morning, we just suddenly hear all these people making a commotion outside. We're like, oh god, a, a boat's landed. You go down and you see all these guys getting off this boat, and the boat's kind of flipping as because the, the waves are crashing against it. Another night we went and a boat came in. They were much further down the coastline and there was a woman laid on a rock uh, holding her belly and she was nine months pregnant. And I was on the radio to the doctor. And then this guy comes over. I'm trying to communicate with this woman. I could really find it difficult because she was a civvy and didn't speak a word of English. And he says, oh, hello, can I help? And it turns out that he was a, an English professor from Damascus University. And I was like, "Where did you learn to speak English like that?" Oh, I had a, I was in, I was in Oxford for four years, and they were like, "What are you doing here?" He says, "Oh, I'm a refugee." I was like, "You speak better English than me, man." <laughs> and we know how to do this inspection on this lady. The doctor was saying to me, "Oh, I want to know if the baby's crowning." And I'm like, "Oh my god, how am I going to do this?" She sat with her sister, and I'm like, "Right, okay, what we're going to do is I'm going to communicate to you the, 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 this university lecturer." Yeah. You're going to communicate to the sister, and then she's going to do the inspection. Got you. Doctor, give me really simple instructions, please. One after the other. Step one, 
Okay, so he told me what to do and the baby's not crowning. There's no, she waters haven't burst. So now you need to kind of go and give her some reassurance. So then eventually I got a stethoscope and put the, the earpieces to her ears and then pressed it, then pressed it against her heart so she could hear her heart beating and then against the stomach so she could hear the baby's heart going at a different rate. And then I was explaining, oh, Baba. And then your heart. And she was, um, she was just like so happy that, that this has happened. And so despite language barriers and things, there was a way and also cultural differences. For example, you know, she wouldn't want you to inspect her on the beach there in front of everybody. But actually you found ways through a doctor and you and a Syrian professor who could speak English and her sister to yeah. actually figure it out. Yeah. Just to set the scene a little bit for the situation in Lesvos at that time, towards the winter of 2015, right? Yeah. We were seeing something that actually we'd never seen in Europe before. And I know that we've had boats arriving to Lesvos for years and years, and that we have had refugees arriving to the shores of Europe for years and years, but this was unprecedented. There were boats arriving en masse. Can you just describe a little bit about that and about how it was crazy, what was happening there? It was just incredible, the scale of it was utterly phenomenal. To describe it is nigh on impossible because you can see all the pictures of it. But when you're holding that that woman's hand and you're taking her child off a boat from her and she's passing you her everything into your arms. There was one boat that these people, when we arrived at that boat, it was sinking. It was sinking. There were people in the bottom deck where it was filling up with water. There were people smashing the windows windows with their fingertips trying to get out. You know, they were punching the windows trying to get out. The people on the top deck were trying to kick the windows in to let them out. It was that that touch and go. And as we got the boat closer to the, the our speedboat closer to them, they were throwing their babies at the boat. Can you imagine throwing your child into a boat? It's just, it's beyond words. And they, 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 were, they, were, they were saying to us, please just take, the, just take the child. I can drown myself, just take the child. And that was happening all the time. It was every day. And there were two children every single day that wouldn't make it. So you say, can you describe it? It's, no way can anyone describe it. No way. What I can say, it was utterly wrong. Utterly wrong. How could our governments allow that to happen? And I tried to look at it really positively. I tried to look at all the positive sides of all of this. And the, you know the, sto- the positiveness of the stories that we've, the people that we've helped are beautiful, but it is a scandal and a disgrace that really angers me. That nobody in our governments stood for what we should all be all stand for. I can't believe that we had people drowning, children drowning on our beaches, and there wasn't a government response. Would that have happened if it was my family? No way. I'm white. I'm English. I'm European wouldn't have been allowed. On the last day of Brendan's first trip to Lesvos, he did the night shift before his flight was due to leave the next morning to take him home for Christmas. As the shift came to an end on the 23rd of December 2015, something happened that will stay with him forever. This is the story of Brendan and the baby. It was 10 to 6 in the morning and I saw a boat coming. It was pitch black. There was a moon in the sky and I saw this boat way in the distance like it was like a little pea on the horizon and I, was, I said to the, the, the girl that was with me I says, is that a boat she's like yeah I think so I think so we're looking through our binoculars and she's like yeah it's 
definitely about definitely about right, I'll go and wake everybody up. And I was looking back every now and again. It's and it's coming in a lot quicker than the other boats have come. We're not going to get a chance to get everybody awake. So I went to wake this this lady up called Heckler. Heckler's from Iceland, and she's a warrior woman. And she was uh, the team leader, but she was the team leader because she'd been there the longest, and that's how it worked out there. But she was also she was such a, nat- a natural leader anyway. I says, uh, Heckler, we've got a boat coming in. She's getting out of her tent, all bleary-eyed, rubbing them. Where is it? I says, it's coming in fast, Heckler. I says, it's to the right. She says, yeah, whereabouts? She says, oh, yeah, I see it now. She says, oh, yes, that's coming in really quick. We're not going to get a chance to to land them. They're going to land themselves. You know, hopefully they'll land somewhere safe. I'm like, yeah, well, let's hope so. I says, yeah, make sure everyone else is awake. And as soon as I said that, the the boat hit the rocks at the just below the surface and you heard this loud bang where the the rocks had pierced the rubber tube of the boat it just went boom and then you you heard everyone scream and in that black sky in that black sea you saw all this all these phones going up in the sky all the lights and the torches went up the screams went out the splash and then as they all the phones and the torches sunk to the bottom it just all went black and it all went very quiet. And I remember Heckler in her own Icelandic accent, she went, what was that, what was that? And I says, I said, oh my God, it's capsized. And then both of us instinctively went towards it. We're scrambling down the cliffside. I'm, I was wearing a, a wetsuit 24-7 at the time and I'm zipping it up on the way down. I dropped my coat on the side. I never saw it again. <laughs> Nor my phone that was in the pocket. And I climbed down that rock, rock, rock face as quickly as I could. And then the next minute I'm swimming. By that point, the, the people had resurfaced, of course. And you could hear initial screams. And then you could hear children shouting, Mama, Papa, over and over. You could hear mothers shouting for their children. Hassan, Hassan. I'll just remember this one voice. The little boy must have been called Hassan and he could hear it over and over. And he could hear other children's names being called. Was, in the background, there was this one woman screaming over and over. And then you could still hear people trying to locate each other, you know, like this way. You know, it was in different languages, but you could tell right. that what people were trying to organise each other to, to self-rescue. I started swimming out towards where the boat was and there was this woman and she was mid-70s, maybe 80. And I remember her and her face when I came to swim up to her and she thought I was coming to save her. And But then I could hear children and I just swam straight by her. And as the look on her face that I'd just left her, I remember it. I felt really guilty, but, you know, I'd made it. I'd just, you just had to, you, in those situations, you just make you just make your calls and you live with them. You make whatever call you have to make and you just fucking live with it. Right, and I just made that call. I ain't rescuing you. I'm going to rescue some child. I can live with that. So I swam on. I come across the boat that had capsized with a head torch. I went and looked underneath it, and there was nobody there. There was a couple of bags floating that I thought maybe were bodies, and I got a hold of them, and they were just they were just bags. Left them. Come back out and look at the boat, and there's a few kids holding onto it. You know, not very old teenagers and younger. I decided they had something floating that they were holding on to that wasn't going to sink. 
It was snagged, the boat was snagged on the rocks. It wasn't going to float away. They weren't safe. But in comparison to the situation, they were relatively safe. But then I made it towards where I could still hear a father and a, and a son shouting. I could hear someone shouting, Papa. And I started swimming that direction. And there was still this woman screaming over and over and over. I'll never forget it. And I get to the guy and... Um, He's, he's now got his boy who's about 14 years old. He's now got him reunited. And he's shouting, Baba, Baba. Because uh, this woman, you see, she was just stationary in her life jacket. She was going to, you know, the water, that water was going to absorb it and it was going to sink it. But she was facing towards Turkey. Everybody else is trying to get towards Greece. She's facing towards Turkey with her arms outstretched and she's screaming over and over and over. And there can only be one reason a woman screams like that. She had a sister with her who was trying to get her to swim back, who was trying to drag her away. And the the guy said, Baba, Baba. It was pitch black still. I could see life jackets. It looked like they were, I thought maybe some of those people were face down in the water and some of those bags were maybe people. I'm just going to swim in the middle of it, find the first person I find that's not breathing, and I'm going to take him back. I'm not a great swimmer. I've already swum a lot. I've got one army boot on and one army boot off. I've got my, I've got a, I've got my wetsuit on and I'm tired. But I, I, I swim out a little bit and I come across the first bag. I looked at it and it was a bundle with a baby inside of it. And the baby was face down in the water. And I turned it over and, and I just, it was every, every single volunteer's worst nightmare. I had a baby in my hands. She, she wasn't breathing. Her eyes were in the back of her head. Her lips were blue. She was really pale. Pulled her close to me so I could see if any breath sounds at all. There was nothing. And I thought, well, I know that if she gets back to shore, she's got a chance. And if I, if I look for anybody else, she's got no chance. So let's just do it. Forget anything else. So I lay on my back and start swimming. And After a few seconds, I realised I could probably really quickly on my chest do some compressions at the same time as I'm pulling the water behind me trying to swim a bit like when you rub your head and pat your tummy well, so you had the baby on your you were on your back the I'm baby on, my on your front yeah both of us facing the stars and you were performing CPR on trying the baby to yeah as you swam with the other doing my best to just keep some I just thought I can't be really effective like that but it might keep some circulation going we might do something just keep going. Do what you can. I can do that while I'm swimming. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything else. Just do what you can. And I'm, you know, I'm not a religious guy either. And I grew up being told you know, that, that there was a God. Being, grew up in a, in a religious household where, it was, where Christianity was important. In those moments, I was shouting at God. I was, you will help me now. If you're there, you will, you will help me now. She does, this, this baby does not deserve to die here. I'm, I was screaming, come on, come on, get back. I swam as fast as I could and get back towards the shoreline and I could hear a lot of people calling my name. They must have seen this head torch making its way back through the water. Then I could, I could hear them going, he's got a baby, he's got a baby. And then this way, this way. So I redirected my swim a little bit because it's very hard to direct your swim when you're swimming backstroke and trying to, trying to do CPR on an unconscious baby 
at the same time, I suppose it's very difficult. Try to reach down, there's nothing. I swim back a few more little paces, reach down, and my, my foot lands on a rock, and I realise I can probably get on my tiptoes, and I turn the baby's head just out of the water, my head's just out of the water, I turn it on one side, I know from my training that if I do five rescue breaths, that's what I've got to do, five rescue breaths, that's the first thing you do for, for an infant that's not breathing. So I did the first one, a little blow. Nothing. Oh God. Try again. And the second little blow that I put into her mouth, she started to sick the water up, the seawater. Foam came out of her nose. And then the next second she's screaming. (laughs) And that is incredible. That's an incredible moment. I'll never forget it. There was this little girl, so important. The rest of her life ahead of her. And it was all so nearly taken away. And there was me, this this idiot from Durham. <laughs> and, I, and I knew that I got her. The relief was just um, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I did a few more little swims back and then there was a guy called Just. Dutch volunteer and I said, Just take it. I can't swim anymore. I remember getting out of the water and I climbed up onto this rock and Heckler was coming towards me. <laughs> Her face was absolutely red with with crying. Because she was just she was a warrior. She was fighting through it all, but she was doing it in a flood of tears. She was like, Brendan, Brendan, she's coming towards me. I'm like, Heckler, did you see that? She's like, Yes, yes. Oh my God. She says, Brendan, I need you now. I need you. There there were more. Go back. And I said, I I can't. And I remember just knowing that my thighs were burning. Everything hurt. And I I just knew I couldn't do any more. And she she says, okay, go go to the medical room. So I had a couple of seconds and I rested on this rock on on all fours, panting my lungs out. Heckler just turned around and went to help other people. And I had that couple of seconds of just trying to, trying to process what had just happened in my head. And I could see Yost going up the, going up the steps of the baby. I'm like, God, he's, he's on land. And see Heckler wading out into the water. And then I see, um, a, a Greek fishing boat has arrived and they, he's pulling those kids off that, the boat that's, that's snagged on the rocks. He's taking them off there. I could see Arnab, this American firefighter, and Josh, this guy from New Zealand. I could see them out in the water going towards all the bags to the right of me. I see uh, Giada de Grandi, this lady um, from Italy, and she is bringing home this woman in the 70s that had swum by. And I just sat there and I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) The team. Yeah, and I could just see that everybody was doing something and that Freya, the doctor would have been on her own. So I ran up, ran up, got to the medical room. In the medical room, Brendan found Freya caring for the baby he had rescued. So I go to a bag of baby clothes that we've got. You know, she's obviously stripped her naked by then. Um, mm-hmm. Got her under this uh, halogen lamp. I go reach in this bag and I pull out a hat and a blanket, I wrap them around. It's, uh, that's my Christmas present that my little girl gave me. And I'm wrapping her in in those clothes and then 
she says, okay, I need to help me with the oxygen. She's not breathing enough. So every breath that she gives, I want you to give a little squeeze like this. I'll say, okay, I've got it. So put the oxygen mask, make sure I've got a good seal. And I'm every breath she's doing, I'm just doing a little bit more of a squeeze. And then I look down at the oxygen and it's been donated from the people of Derbyshire. There's been a guy, Sergio, in the, in the White Art and Beasting in Nottingham, has had a collection tin, a pint glass on his bar that says, to help refugees. And people have been putting their little bits of coins from when they've been buying a pint, they've just been dropping the change in there. And that's helped. And individual contributions from all around the East Midlands, and then also, of course, that's replicated throughout the UK and then throughout Europe. Individual people's contributions had made that difference. And there I am with this baby. Derbyshire Refugee Solidarity paid for my journey. You wrote the story that inspired me. And I just remember just being there at the spearhead of what was happening, but then seeing how fundamental and important each of those different aspects was, was just tangible. I just remember that little moment of being like, wow, this would not have happened if we'd left our governments to it. This is this is us. This is people that that follow the worldwide worldwide tribe and put their hand in their pocket and put, bring out their bring out their card and go away. Do you know what? I want to give ten pound donation today because it makes a difference. That's the difference it makes. So every link in the chain was clear. It all brought you to that point from the hat that you'd put on the baby's head to the oxygen that you were using to help her to breathe to the swimming out there in the first place, to the flight to get there, mm-hmm. to the story behind it. It all put together like a jigsaw puzzle. I could see it. And it was, uh, it was amazing. It was beautiful. But it was tragic at the same time. Then the, the mum comes in. She'd been she, rescued she, as well? She, she, she'd, well, everybody was rescued. That was the incredible thing. There were 35 people and nobody died. And she came into the room and she saw me squeezing that bag. And of course she thought that I'm trying to save the baby's life mm-hmm. and she dropped to her knees and I could see her praying and then I said to Freya I said, she probably doesn't know the baby's alive she says take the mask off took the mask off the baby cries and then she just turned into a ball of emotion literally and figuratively and the way she just undone herself and just cried her heart out and then she got up and I, I had the baby and brought the baby closer to her and she's kissing the baby and she's kissing my hands and she's saying thank you to the doctor who the doctor could speak some Arabic as well and, and there was like this little small interaction for a couple of moments and then you know we worked slowly on the baby again got the baby warm enough eventually an ambulance turned up and off they went and I get back and then I'm like there's another boat Oh my God. <laughs> and that's how it was. You had no time to process it. And then I'm like, guys, I need someone to take me to the, to the airport now. And so then it was back to London or back was, to England. It was back to England. But then, 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 then uh, Josh, the New Zealand guy, he was getting a lift back and he says, I can, I'll, I'll give you a lift now. So they, we literally picked me up from, from the water. I got into the, into that four before. They dropped me off at the airport. They, they had to keep the, the stairs there at the plane to, in order for me to get onto it. I'm trying to get back for Christmas to see my family. They hold, they held the stairs there. I run onto the stairs. I sit down and put my hands on my head and I can feel my hair is still wet. And I just sat there and was like, holy moly it's just this is this has just happened I got off I got off at Athens and I had a 
connection there and got into the plane and I thought, I was like, I need to write this story down, it's so important. So I had nothing left anymore. I, didn't, I couldn't write it on my phone that had gone with my coat. With, with, with this guy was next to me, a Greek guy, and he was next to me with, with his wife and they were doing a crossword. I said, when you're finished with that pen, do you mind if I borrow it? And he's like, yeah, why, why so urgent? You know, what have you got to write? I'm like, I've just had this experience. I need to write down while it's fresh. And he says, oh, what, what, what's happened? And I started to tell him and he's like, stop, write. And I started, on the back of a sick bag, I started writing the story. And then as he saw me... I, on the back of a sick bag? Yeah. <laughs> as I got to the end of that, he, uh, he undone his sick bag and passed me that. And then he, was, then he was translating the story into Greek for his wife to understand. And they just sat there both sobbing. And then she starts undoing her one. And, and on the back of three air sickness bags, I wrote the story about what had happened and arrived in Stansted. I get off and I've got no, no phone connection. I've met this lady called Danielle Cobb, who was a volunteer as well. I says, Danielle, can I borrow your phone a second? I need to be able to, there's people picking me up. I need to be able to get in touch with them. She says, yeah, of course you can. So I connect onto her phone, connect onto Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then this, this message comes in and it's, and it says, um, Brendan, just to let you know, baby suing is five months old. She's alive and well in hospital and she's just been reunited with the rest of her family. Thank you very much. And, and I showed it to Danielle, who I'd told the story to as we, as we landed. And we just both so, we stood there and turned and hugged each other. And yeah, we were a big snotty mess by the, by the time I got to the, to the car to be picked up and driven home and then I had Christmas. <laughs> Brendan, I've got goosebumps all over my body. And, and then how, how was Christmas for you in the days following that? Yeah, um, Christmas was very strange. Sat watching my kids opening presents, trying to be a ball of fun, but just being a ball that didn't want to do anything. Really, that's what I was. I wasn't much use. I shouldn't really have done it so close to Christmas. You didn't know what to expect, right? Did you? No. Did you imagine in your wildest dreams that yeah, of course you went to Lesbos to help, but that you would be experiencing those crazy things? within those two weeks. I mean, we, we, we hoped that we could be of some use and some help, but we didn't necessarily realise or recognise the extent of that, right? That's right, yeah. So I think everyone ahead of any experience will always kind of prepare themselves for it. You'll research, you'll look at it, and you think, well, this could happen, that could happen, and how am I going to cope with that? And, you know, I could have a, I could have a dead child on my hands, and that could very easily happen. That was happening a lot. I'd read stories of other volunteers that had been and found dead babies on the beach on the way back to the hotel. And uh, I knew that I'd definitely come across boats and I'd definitely come across people to rescue and help. Didn't really know that it was going to be as bad as it was. I didn't know what it was going to feel like. I tell you what people don't prepare for, and that's coming home. Because you absorb yourself for those two weeks in what was happening. And you come back and it's... Somebody's like, oh, did you see Game of Thrones last night? I'm like, I don't care about Game of Thrones. You know, I've just been in the sea. Yeah, everybody else's life has just gone on as normal and yeah. you've experienced this life-changing two weeks. And and people should experience life as normal. I'm not saying that they mm-hmm. shouldn't, but it's just really strange when you come back and people aren't aware of what's been happening. Because the newspapers don't report this. But I would find it highly unlikely that you'll read today about the boat that capsized today. There has been a boat capsized today in in, um, in, in Turkey, leaving to go towards Kos. Mm-hmm. And currently there are 10 people missing from that boat. 
um, including little children. And it's happening. That's that's happened today, this morning. And I'll find it. I'll I'll be amazed if you find that on BBC News. Yeah. You know, we've been talking this week about the situation in Sudan and that it's not being, I mean, there's so much that we're not seeing in our mainstream media. People still ask me, oh, what, there's there's still refugees in Calais or there's still refugees crossing the Mediterranean because it's not on those in those mainstream media on the headlines anymore. It seems that people think that it's it's changed or it's been solved or that people aren't making these journeys anymore or these things are continuing to happen and we need to continue to keep that at the forefront of people's minds right i think it's crucial yeah yeah this is still the biggest humanitarian crisis of our time So that was the same Christmas that I remember feeling very, very conflicted myself because I'd come back from Calais and it actually seemed so difficult for me to comprehend the fact that the people that I'd got so close to and made really close connections and friendships with were just across the water. Within an hour, you could be there. I lived in Kent, so it was super, super close and we were living such different realities. Same for me. I remember watching everybody opening presents and eating like indulgent amounts of food. And it just seemed mad that these two realities existed alongside each other, putting that into a place that I could process and understand. I I really, really struggled with. So yeah. how, how did how did you do that after that Christmas and the years to follow? It is really cool to know that what is my right is not somebody else's right. Human rights should be universal. Everybody should be entitled to human rights, but we're not. We're really, really, really lucky where we are. And these worlds do live alongside each other. But I don't think anywhere really contrasts that more than a border. But why can I travel? If I wanted to go to Africa, any country, I could book a flight tomorrow and I could be there in a couple of days, even on the budget that I've got, and I could be in any of the countries that any of these people come from within the next couple of days. Mm -hmm. Why is it any different for them? It is beyond me, and I can see no reason. And the long, I used to think, I used to believe in borders. I used to sit down and think, they protect what we've got from everybody else. And we've worked really hard to get what we've got. And so everybody else should have to work really hard to get it as well. The longer I've been involved in this, the more I realize that this is just a lottery of life. I was so fortunate, so fortunate to have been born in the UK where every single thing is my human right. And they were born in Sudan, just by chance, by no other reason. And they're born into conflict, and they are not allowed to get away from it. Nobody wants to help them. They're not allowed on a flight. People say, oh, well, they they should come here by legal routes then. You tell me what legal routes they've got. They've got none. Do you not think they've thought of that? Do you think they're getting on the boat because they, they thought, do you know what, there's a legal way, but I'm going to chance my arm a little bit because it sounds a bit more risque and I'm a bit of a chancer. They're not doing that. They're getting into those boats because they have to. A lot of the people, we talk about economic migrants and people say, oh, I, I, I want to help refugees, but I don't want to help rec- economic migrants. You know, the genuine refugees I can help. And that's there, the, that's a terminology. Like, like people aren't genuine in their, in their search for help. But when they talk about the 
the people being not genuine refugees they're talking about human beings first of all that just want to improve their life like i'm i'm an economic migrant i moved from durham to mm. nottingham because i wanted to work i got a job in nottingham and that's where i wanted to live i'd be an economic migrant if i wanted to move to australia to work these people have got nothing they've got no opportunities they've got no future and who wants to live a life without a future i don't i wouldn't accept it why should they and it's and what stops them from doing it is borders and what stops them from doing it is silly rules that don't apply to me and you but they do apply to them and what's the key difference between me and you and them it's the country of origin that we're born in and it's so true that when you say you know we feel like we've worked hard to get to where we are i think that doing the work that you've done and the work that i do actually that unpicks that idea very quickly because it shows that actually the people that are really working hard to have this way of life to have the safety and security that we so easily are born into allowed it they're the ones working super hard for it and not actually having it at their disposal like we do but yeah i, I totally agree with you it's made me really look at how we have just fallen into these these lives with this privilege and actually we have a responsibility to recognize that and you are an incredible example of someone not just recognizing that but but acting upon it thank you we all just need to realize how lucky and gifted we are to be here to have the opportunities that we've got but then to see what we can do to share that fortune and um, there are people that are coming to our country and there are people that are coming into Europe and there are a lot of people throughout the world that are displaced through no fault of their own. That's really important to, to recognise that it isn't, none of this is their fault and we need to perhaps think of a way to, to help them. When you hear somebody saying something about immigrants and you hear somebody calling them illegal, you need to challenge it. Because if you don't, you're allowing it and you're enabling it. The narrative that happened in 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 Germany pre- before the war is happening again. It's been it's been replicated, and I often look back and think, how was it allowed to happen? And it was allowed to happen because good people did nothing. Because people were quiet. I couldn't agree more, Brendan. Thank you so much for talking to me today about this uh, honestly it's an honor and i think everybody should hear this story lovely thank you very much i hope this story resonated with you the same way that i know it did for me if it did please subscribe and leave a review it will help us to keep sharing these important stories and amplifying these voices that often go unheard i'd love to know your thoughts and what you'd like to hear more of to let me know, head over to our Instagram account, at the Worldwide Tribe. Follow and leave me a comment or direct message. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become, and the more we unite as one Worldwide Tribe. A big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode. 